From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to one hour, a trim down one hour for the summer of 2023. Wharton Moneyball Sports Analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. We're coming to you via Zoom as we have for, what is it now, uh, three years, three plus years. It allows most of us to be here most weeks. Uh, we are recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we also typically do. This show will go up on Wednesday, broadcast first on SiriusXM, replayed a few times over the course of the week, and we'll get the podcast up on Wednesday also. Gentlemen, good to see you. We have uh, an interesting baseball guest in the second half of the show. Going to talk baseball analytics, especially with Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs. We are always about Fangraphs, so it's fun to get someone from that outfit onto the show. Between now and then, open lines. Uh, we're just out of a the second major of the golf, third major, third major of the golf year. And it was an interesting one. I'm curious. I happen to see a fair bit of it this time around. Any thoughts on Wyndham Clark nipping Rory McIlroy by one stroke? at the U.S. Open out in Los Angeles. So for me, I, I hate to say, look, I'm, Wyndham Clark deserved to win. He played really well on Sunday. It uh, looked like at one point he was going to not run away with it, but have an easier finish than he did before he bogeyed two of the, I think it was the 14th and 15th hole. But we've got to keep talking about this story of, you know, Rory McIlroy, it's been nine years since he's won a major. It's another top five finish for him without winning. Um, right now, also, it's a little bit different because he was never in the lead. Scotty Scheffler was always trying to catch up. And by the way, he's not been around as long as Roy McIlroy. He's 26, I think. McIlroy's 34. But this is now the eighth or ninth tournament that Scotty Scheffler's come in the top three and not won the tournament either. So all I'm commenting on is it just reinforces that winning golf tournaments is a lot different than coming in the top 10 in golf tournaments. And, you know, Roy McIlroy even said after the tournament, it might take 20 or 30 more times for him to win one. And I'm like, oh, my God, no. Are you kidding? Like, you're saying to me you're going to do this another five, like you're going to be 40 years from now until you're 40, until you win another major? So to me, this was as much about Wyndham Clark's success with really McElroy's failure and then Ricky Fowler, who I didn't have high expectations for on Sunday, but for him to shoot 75, uh, that's not acceptable. I mean, it's not, it's not unacceptable. Rick, it's just, these are, these are pretty, pretty different players. I mean, Ricky had this phenomenal tournament from out of nowhere where Rory has been a favorite for a couple of years now and, and as active. I don't, I don't think Ricky Fowler's played, you know, three majors in the last four years, something like that. So it may be a little bit less surprising that he faded on Sunday or regressed to the mean on Sunday. Eric, I'm, I'm you know, you, I'm guessing you watched a fair bit of Sunday. Did you see anything in Rory's game that made you think that he wasn't quite up to it? Because I think my assessment was that he played well enough to win in many circumstances, in many, in many. Yeah. Sessions. So, I mean, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, he parred the last 17. He didn't, sorry, he didn't have a birdie the last 17 holes. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to win you a lot of majors unless it's really, really tough conditions. So I think he birdied the first, he bogeyed the 14th and had all pars other than that. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. you could say he played a very conservative style. He was hoping maybe Wyndham Clark would fall apart or Fowler would fall apart and no one would catch him. Or it's just really hard to birdie holes in a U.S. Open. And therefore, you know what? The way he played, he shot even par. He, he didn't I mean, he played Eric, well. I'd like, to, I'd like to know something about putter luck, essentially. I, and I, I, didn't, I didn't do this intuitively as the round unfolded. But I'm guessing, I mean, Adi is often about this. We've learned that this in the last few years, that putting matters a lot. We just had this. We're going to have this conversation. We just had it with our guest. It'll show up on the show in a minute on predictive stats versus descriptive stats. Turns out putting makes a big difference on who wins these things, but it's not very predictive. And I just I just wonder what kind of putting luck, if you will, it was the putting residual for Rory negative. I'm pretty sure it was. He did, I don't think he made anything. How much of that was because he was playing conservative and therefore left himself lengthy putts? He wasn't really going at the pin. Or how much of it was because he had kind of 
to be expected distances to the pin, but the putts didn't fall. And, and so that's part that's, I think that'd be an interesting analysis to see. Yeah. And so I'm looking at it now. I, you know, somebody else jumps in here. I'll find exactly where he is, but there's exactly this breakdown of players by stats for each of the major statistics on usopen.com. It has strokes gained on driving, fairways hit, greens and regulation, putting, sand save birdies. It breaks it down by player by round. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we can absolutely, uh, we, we absolutely can look at that. Uh, here, I'll find it while you guys are speaking. Well, the other thing is with Wyndham Clark, it's always interesting to know whether these guys who are relatively unknown. Now, this guy won. Okay, I have it right here. Rory McIlroy lost two strokes compared to expectation putting in the last round, which is a lot. It's a a huge amount considering how much the conversation we had last week talked about. of, Of the 65 players that made the cut, he was the eighth worst putting on Sunday. And so, how much this, the question is like, how much of that is very random chance versus some kind of underperformance? And I, I don't, how would we even answer that question? Well, I well we could look at that. We could look at that. We could look at the time series of that statistic compared. I mean, it's a lot. This is a great statistical question. We could look at it. His fourth round compared to his other rounds in the same tournament would probably yeah. be the best, you know, almost like a treatment control. It's not an experiment. Yeah. Yep. But it does control for the week, the quality of the course, the, you know, yep. we could compare him to the field, right? That's another way to benchmark it. How's he doing? We could do a diff and diff. What's his differential compared to the differential in the field? That would be another way to do it. Um, but th- th- those would all be good ways to do it. And just, yeah, or you- I mean, you could maybe try and combine all those into like a, a regression model where you have, day effects and player effect, you know, player effects and, and, and various things. And then to look at the residuals or something like that from the either coefficients, if you actually build it into your regression model or residual group residuals, if you don't build it into your regression model, like again, just sort of like putts, you know, putts, you know, normed the regression model would help to norm his putting performance on a Sunday relative yeah. to his own putting performance relative to others, putting performances on a Sunday, yeah. et cetera. Yep. 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 Yeah. I wonder if that strokes gained on Sunday is specific to, is it relative to other Sunday performers or is it relative to some general model? So that all, everybody could yeah, be below. That's right. I don't know the answer to that. Um, all right. Well, we could do this for a little while, by the way, what was your reaction as a viewer? If anybody watched it much enough to say, what was your reaction as a viewer to a Los Angeles country club? Because there was a fair bit of controversy on a few different elements of the tournament. But as a viewer, I thought it was an unusually fun tournament to watch. It's a, it was a pretty course. There seemed to be a fair bit of variance. Like, you know, you'd watch these these Ricky Fowler scorecards, especially the first couple of days, and they're all birdies and bogeys, you know. The course seemed to induce, you know, Rory's fourth round notwithstanding. The course seemed to induce a fair bit of volatility, which makes for fun viewing. But I don't, I don't gather that the pros felt the same way. Yeah, I think that what was atypical for a U.S. Open course was the width of the fairways. And so that's the part that and and what when that means is if there's wide fairways, that means the big bombers are going to have an advantage because, you know, unlike tight fairways at U.S. Opens, I forget the U.S. Open that Tiger Woods, for example, obviously the biggest hitter of his era, um, never drove the ball. He hit an Mm -hmm. iron off every single tee um, because the penalty for missing the fairway was severe. In this course, I think that's was the complaints of many of the players was that the fairways were so wide that, um, you know, it just gave the longest hitters a tremendous opportunity there. And I think that was one thing. I think also um, what we noticed was this was the fun part. Do you guys remember the record? This is another thing we should talk about. The record was broken for the top best round ever in a major. Matter of fact, Ricky Fowler and... Um, I think it was Xander Shopley shot 62 in the final round. And let's remember that almost ended up shows you how the non-stationarity within the tournament that almost ended up being the winning score. I mean, they shot minus eight in the first round and the winning score for the tournament that was in the first round. The winning score was, I think nine under or 10 under. I mean, they basically had, they, I hate to say it this way, but if they had just shot even par the rest or two under the rest of the tournament, they would have, I mean, you can't play it. It's not exactly the right counterfactual, but if you had told me when the, when the first round scores were both 62 and minus eight, two players that the winning score would be minus 10. Most people would say, how is that going to be? 
Well, this is a little bit the money hall problem because the course gets to decide the difficulty of the, the, the guys get to decide the difficulty of the setup the next few days. And this is a tournament that had never been played at Los Angeles country club. So they didn't have a professional, no professional tournament there in whatever, almost hundred years, they didn't have the data on how the guys were going to play it. And so they, they put a setup on Thursday and they saw what happened and they, and they, they made it more difficult. They made it more challenging going forward. Um, Eric, just one correction. That was a low for the U.S. Open. That wasn't a low for majors, I believe. No, no, no. That's not true. No one's ever shot lower than 62 in a major. Absolutely not. It's not just for the U.S. Open. I don't think anyone's shot lower than... I don't think. Eric, one last bit on golf before we leave it is I want to go back to this question that you raised, and you've raised it before, about the ability to close these things. What's the right way... What's the expectation for... And how often a guy can finish, you know, in the in the top five, say, and not win in the major. And what what I mean, so we couldn't we shouldn't always throw around the Tiger stats and the Tiger famously after when leading after 54 holes, almost never lost a tournament. That's not typical. But if you look at somebody like Nicholas Mickelson, these guys have a lot of seconds. Well, you saw the same stat that I saw put up during the tournament during the fourth round. Nicholas has more seconds than he has first. He has 18 majors and 19 seconds. Mickelson has six majors and I think it was 11 or 12 second places. Um, McElroy's starting to get up there in yeah. terms of second place or the ratio, if you'd like, of second place finishes to first. Yeah, I, I think that, that Tiger's the exception. And he's the exception because he was so much better than everybody else at his prime that he was so much likely to be way ahead going into the the final round, and of course, he he has he he you know for him winning was much more common than second because of the distribution of his probabilities. Um, everyone else ha- is ex- not expected to win, and so the 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 one is less than two because their expect expected value is probably like three, five, six, or something. And I think almost everyone should be have more likely to have more seconds than first. I think we also, I think as you're also saying, we really need to look at a curve, which is conditional on being ahead by X number of strokes. What's your win probability? Now, the problem is there's not a lot of data for each of those curves, right? But you could do a tiger curve compared to the rest of golf or something and see, because you're right. If I'm ahead by, forget me. But let's let's generalize it. By nine strokes, they're going to win too. But let's generalize it to not just being ahead, but being in the hunt, like within a couple of strokes. And, and yeah, I mean, some- or, or, or like what you do on your final day relative to what you've done. Like somebody, you know, seconds are, you know, even for a good player, seconds should be more numerous from first because you not only like have the opportunity to transition from second to first, but third to second, you know, I mean, so when we talk about these Jim Nicholas's second place finishes, I'd like to know how many of those were him staying at second to him transitioning from first to second in the final round yeah. or him transitioning from third to second in our final round. You know, so like the people who who tell, tell psychological stories don't find the latter as interesting as the former. You know, it's like, no, it's, but I mean, no, but I, I agree. And I mean, there might be some. I mean, we're kind of arguing that there's something special about that transition from second to first that right. doesn't. You want to kind of hold out as different. Yeah, yeah. But again, yep. it does facilitate. You've got more data. The more the more you sure. kind of generalize to general movements, the more data you could kind of have to evaluate too. But this is a great, classic example of a statistic that doesn't really make sense unless you understand the context, and that's usually all admitted, omitted. You don't know where they came from before the last round. And, and we talked about putting earlier. This is a, it, this is why analytical stats are so much more valuable. They talk about value over expected because it adjusts for that. I mean, we used to think that there was big differences in putting. That's because if you just look at the putting success, there, there are differences, but if you, but most of that comes from the average distance to the hole <laughs> that got you there. That's right. That's and right. that the better putters were had easier putts. <laughs> uh, you just used right. the term analytical stats. I think I know what you mean, but did, what do you mean? And is that an actual term? Uh, I know what I mean by something that's not a counting stat, something that comes from a combination of an observation and a model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I agree with you, Adi. I think your point is an excellent one. I get my, not just perception, but I think I looked at this maybe a couple of days ago. Scotty Scheffler's second and thirds, he wasn't leading and didn't win. He was in 10th and shot mm-hmm. a really good final round and ended up second and third. I just didn't quite do enough to get over the top. 
And so I don't think he's got as many, in quotes, blown leads as in the, over the last two years since he became the number top golfer mm-hmm. in the world as Rory McIlroy does. Very different scenario. I agree with you. Well, let's talk about these projections in another sport. We have the NBA draft coming up Thursday night and the presumed number one pick, Victor Wimbayama, is expected to go to San Antonio. I, I happen to be watching it live down here in Central Texas when that lottery happened. And it was a it was a fun moment that San Antonio ended up with that thing. They've had some other notable top picks. They've had some other French players. So it's an interesting little a, a confluence of events. But Eric asked a question during the week that's I think is interesting. How do you how would you project this guy? People are talking about him being a generational talent. What if we're going to approach this analytically? He's how old? Eighteen years old. He's 19, played a little 19. bit in nineteen now. He's played in the top French league. Well, obviously, and, just match him up with the talent, generational talent from the singular generational talent from last generation, and there you've got your projection with that person. <laughs> well, what LeBron did or whatever. I, I'm, I guess I'm being glib about this whole generational talent thing that I think every couple of years we hear about one. So, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you were going to do a projection, right, how do we in general tend to at least what's a reasonably sophisticated way to do projections? So what you might do is you might measure a bunch of observable characteristics of the player and see how project there. The problem with Wembayama is, well, number one, we don't have a lot of seven foot five players that have played in the NBA, right? Right. That's number one. Um, two, the eras have changed. So what a seven foot five player may have done, you know, Mark Eaton from the 1990s, who couldn't shoot outside of three feet from the basket is very different than the three point shooting <laughs> Wembayama, right? Um, yeah. I think the question, you know, the closest to me, the closest, and but didn't have the outside shot. I'm just, look, it wouldn't be a horrible career, but is he Ralph Sampson? I mean, Ralph Sampson, 7'4", was the two-time National College Player of the Year, was claimed to be the greatest, was the next generational player of his generation. And because of both injuries, he could never take the wear and tear, the physical play in the NBA. He Mm -hmm. wasn't as great as he could have been in the NBA. And you worry about Wembayama would be not just injuries, but, you know, when even someone, even just someone LeBron size, you know, can he get down in the post against a guy that's six foot seven, six foot eight, 270 pounds? You know, it's easy to get into the post when you're playing against a 220 pound man and you're 260, 270. But when you're seven, five, 240, 250, and the guy covering you is 270, it's not going to be that easy. So that that's the major concern I would have is injuries, but injuries and will his game translate well? And do you want a seven foot five center shooting from the perimeter? If it's not a post game, then is is, is he a defensive specialist? So what is well, he? Eric, I was gonna I was gonna suggest the defense plays an interesting role in this model because he he, he doesn't have to bang as much to alter people's. Um, strategy and shots and interest in taking those shots down low. We see defend, really good defensive players, guys who block shots, alter the game at a lower height than him. That guy's going to really change what people can do around the bucket. That alone is worth significant value. Right? All right. So is he? So is he some blend of Rudy Gobert, who would be you know seven foot three, who definitely changes the NBA game defensively from his position. Remember, he's one Defensive Player of the Year at least two or three times. Look. Here's the way I would view it from a let's assume he stays healthy from a worst case perspective to me, he will be a top five defensive player. He will change a lot of shots. He'll rebound all of that, whether he can be a great offensive player in the NBA. To me, that's very hard to project. I, I, I think it's easier to project his defensive capabilities going forward than his offensive capabilities going forward. Well, he's definitely catching a lot of attention on the offensive side because he does have such a good shot for such a big guy, and he does seem to move well. You know, for example, contrast him with the big man out of Purdue. I'm forgetting his name right now, but he's about the same height, and he just doesn't move. And this guy's so much more nimble than that guy. But fair enough. These projections are challenging. Young guys are fun to watch for exactly that reason. Let's change sports and ask about another handful of these young guys. Shane loaded us us up with some rookies to be watching in baseball. And he's named this guy who I'm actually going to, I have to, I don't, I get to baseball games so rarely, fellas. I have to kind of brag on it when I do. I'm going to get to see the Reds next week. 
Shane's saying you got to look at Ellie De La Cruz. So Shane, tell us about De La Cruz and tell us about some of these other rookies you think we should be paying attention to right now. Yeah, Ellie De La Cruz, he's only been, I think, called, he's only been up for about 12 games or so. I mean, he was, you know, he's a prospect for the red in the red system that's been generating a ton of hype in, you know, in, in the minor leagues. And again, just watching this guy, he hits the ball incredibly hard. He's so fast. He beat out a grounder to first, which is, <laughs> you know, notable right there. That not a lot of baseball players do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think he's one to keep an eye on. I can't, you know, again, he's only been up for 12 games, so I can't wow you with stats like I can wow you with, you know, for Corbin Carroll, what he's doing out for Arizona right now is, you know, maybe MVP level stuff, not just rookie of the year level stuff. Well, um, Cruz has got some of the stat cast uh, fastest times to first base already. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, like, I think his contact, I mean, he hits the ball really hard, too. So, I mean, I, the peripherals are there just, of course, you know, he's uh, he's not on track for 30 just because he's late, late to the season. He's not on track for like 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases like Corbin uh, Corbin Carroll is. Tell me more about Corbin Carroll. So he's 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 just come out this year with the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks obviously outperforming expectations, doing very well. How long ago was this guy drafted? How long was he in the minors? How, how highly was he drafted when he was drafted? I mean, I, I actually don't know how long. I, I mean, he's, he's I think, 22. So he's a little 21. bit. I mean, he's, 20, he's, he's 21. So obviously he's gone through the minors relatively quickly. And I think I, I think I saw somewhere that, you know, if, if he does get to 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases this season, you know, I think be one of three or four people in, my, in the, you know, baseball history to do that before the age of 22. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, right. so, I mean, and I mean, I guess as comparables go, worth noting that one of those players, other players from be history, are, is currently playing. It's uh, Acuna Jr. For, uh, for Atlanta is one of the other players that's done that. I think, so. I think also what Adi pointed out is important, which is the combination of speed and power. So I was just looking up his stats. Yeah. He has a couple of balls he's hit over like 119 miles an hour. So that, you know. That's extraordinarily rare to hit a ball that hard. So the guy's obviously, I'm not saying he's going to be a 500 home run hitter, but the guy's got power and speed. And I was just, since uh, Shane mentioned him in the, uh, in the rundown, I looked up some of his, apparently the guy's an excellent fielder. So, you know, the guy seems to, you know, he's going to add war on a lot of dimensions, but the ability mm-hmm. to beat out plays to the infield, you know, uh, Balls that are in play, if he can beat them out, that can be a big, big difference for the team. Guys, another baseball story that caught my eye, it's not hard to, it's been high profile, is this Miami player who's hitting 400 and he's been clipping, a, he's been knocking out five for five games. He's got a couple of five for five games, like in the last week, which is He absurd. followed him up, but he had two zero for five games and followed him up with two five for five games. So Correct. his right. average has actually been bopping around between but like point three seven five and 400. What's remarkable about him is he doesn't hit the ball hard, um, but he hits it everywhere. And he, he well, that was actually kind of my guess whenever I heard that he had a couple of five by five games. He had to be a kind of a slap hitter, right? This is just what you kind of expect of a guy hitting that that way. Old fashioned, it's it's throwback baseball in a certain sense because that's what happened is is that 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 was a very common way of hitting, and and the recent last twenty years have seen this this everybody's moving towards swinging really hard with the up plane. Um, and and when you have a when you have a, a a up trajectory on your on your bat on your bat you tend to loft the ball more but it means you're really handcuffed by high pitches but if you're choppering and line driving you and and you're able to do that you you're just much more versatile when you can have much higher batting average but you do have to you do sac- sacrifice so just more. just two comments on that I th- an interesting stat I put in the rundown which I saw so he's now since Ted Williams hit. 406 in 41. Um, he's got the sec. He's the second deepest now into the season, still hitting 400. Um, obviously, Shane will remember. He might have been in Boston at the time when Nomar Garcia Para. Were you in Boston in, in 2000? Yep. Yep. Well, 83 games into the season, he was still hitting 400. Wow. Um, we're now 71 games into the season. That's the second longest. Uh, he's now hitting 400. So. You know, I, I thought that was interesting. The other thing, Adi, you'll, you'll love this quote. One of my favorite Babe Ruth quotes of all time is, and this relates to your comment, Adi, is that, well, if you just wanted me to hit those dinky singles, I probably would hit about 600. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did have a 340 lifetime batting average. You know, and so, like, uh, you know, but that was one of my exactly favorite quotes of Babe Ruth. 
Ty Cobb is exactly the reverse quote. He claims that if you wanted him to hit home runs, he could have hit as many of those as he wanted. Amazing. <laughs> Super interesting. All right, guys, one other baseball note before we change sports on that. We are in the middle of the College World Series. Not sure if y'all are paying attention. Eight teams arrived there late last week, and they're down to six. In fact, they're playing elimination games right now. They're essentially the quarterfinals. It's a little chalky. Five of the eight, the five of the five seeded teams arrived there, all in the top eight. And the two teams that are sitting there undefeated, one on each side of the bracket, are the top two teams. So, um, Wake Forest, number one seed, awaiting a winner of an elimination game, and Florida awaiting an elimination game winner on the other side. So it's a little chalky, but it's also t- a couple of the top teams all all year long are still in the in the hunt. So fun. We'll have a good weekend in Omaha. Um, another major event that wrapped up. We were, I think, we were wrapping up the day we recorded last week was Vegas Golden Knights going in and closing out the NHL season. Shane has found an interesting observation about maybe an advantage those guys had. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I don't, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty well known, I think within kind of the hockey community, but I think it's worth discussing here because I I don't, we talk a lot about things like salary cap constraints and stuff like that in other sports. And I want to just kind of point out this interesting thing about the NHL salary cap, which is crazy is that playoff, players don't count towards it so you can literally add a player to your playoff roster not have them count against your salary cap and this has been used for a couple in a couple situations hey, hold on. Where, where, where do they come from are they on your well, on your injured well so the the notable ones here i i think it's more open-ended than this maybe they actually do have to be on the team at some point during the rest of the season but to like the past two out of three teams have had players that are on long-term injured reserve for like, say the second, the entire, in the case of Tampa Bay, a couple of years ago, with Kucherov, the entire season. But in the case of stone with uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, only the like second half of the season, while they're on injured reserve during the regular season, their salary does not count against the salary cap. And so those teams <laughs> are able to add players kind yeah. of, you know, with the, you know, You'd add extra players because they weren't they they got salary cap relief from those guys' injuries, and then those guys could still play on the playoff team. Right. <laughs> and Kucherov was a great example where they he was essentially a free player that se- season, and that you know he I mean because of this in part because of the COVID shortened season, he missed the entire season, came back for the playoffs, didn't count towards their salary cap at all in that year. And, uh, you know, obviously, it well? was the highest point getter in the playoffs. Did they, they, they play well compared to their expectations of their historical averages? Or Kucherov what? was the leading point giver in the playoffs that year. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like this weird playoff ringer exception that right. – and, and, I mean, again, it's, 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 it's not like it's not legal or anything like that. They're taking advantage of a known loophole. I think the irony of this also is that Tampa Bay actually tried to get – they got burned by it a few years before. I think Chicago used it, got burned by it several years ago, petitioned the league to get it removed. It was voted down, you know, the owners voted to keep it. And then Tampa Bay used it to win the Stanley Cup a couple of years later. So, you know. Good scoop, man. Good insight. By the way, Adi's taking us back one conversation and pointing out that Rod Carew went 81 yeah. games deep. That's halfway through the season, fellas, at 400. We all grew up on Rod Crew. Love well, Rod Tony Crew. Gwynn had like was like hitting three ninety four for over mm-hmm. a season. That strike shortened season is in like ninety three ninety four. I think Tony right. Gwynn was really close to four hundred for the entirety of that unfortunately yeah. shortened season. But, but I remember. Right. I mean, nineteen seventy seven was it was a, ga- a year that I watched as many games as humanly possible before it was the games were on TV. And I remember you were t- ten years old. I, remember, I do remember one point in the season. Uh, Rod Carew was was it you know it's some ridiculously bad high batting average and he went he went over half the season at five at 400 hmm. Good fun. didn't someone steal home the other day maybe that happens more often than i thought but whenever y'all said someone stole home i thought about rod crew immediately yeah it was ikf wasn't it wasn't it a yankee ikf he's still home the classic steal of home you don't ever see that we just just take a big lead and run <laughs> that's great almost as improbable as that guy being on base to steal yeah. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Boston earned a little smack talk this weekend. So more, more power to you. Sir. All right, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. 
Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to one hour in our leaner summer version of Wharton Moneyball, trial one hour version of Wharton Moneyball. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. Rolling into the second half of the show this week, we are using the second half for our interview segment. And this week, we're delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time, Dan Zimborski. Dan is a senior writer at Fangraphs. He's also an ESPN contributor. He's a data consultant. But if you know Fangraphs, you know that means he's a baseball guy. We're forever referencing Fangraphs around here, usually with great reverence, but sometimes with question. Dan's not responsible for the projections, but we might talk a little bit of Fangraphs projections. We can talk all things baseball with Dan. Thanks for making time for us today, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's always good to talk some numbers. Uh, generally, I'm not responsible for the Fangraphs things unless people are angry with me, in which case it is <laughs> always my fault somehow. Right. Well, we we kind of take it as gospel, or at least almost gospel. What, I'm, what we're talking about, team, of course, is a projected standings. It's a nice, quick way to look at how far above or below a team is playing above expectation, as well as something like schedule adjustment to kind of get a sense of where we think they're going. It's a game we play, Dan, throughout the season. A team will start hot and we'll say, okay, what do you think a reasonable win total is for this team? How much regression to the mean should you expect? And you guys are kind of in some sense, uh, we check ourselves against you. Anyway, Dan, you're not the projections guy. Dan, give us a little sense about what you are paying attention to. I know you've got a couple of recent articles up on Fangraphs on pitching injuries related to the pitching clock or or not. It turns out that your results, I think, mostly show that there's no evidence yet that that's there. And then you've got a little bit of a explainer on Z stats, which we might want to drop into. What else is on your mind before we go those directions? Well, the Orioles are always on my mind because the, I am an Orioles fan uh, since I'm originally from Baltimore and the Baltimore Orioles right now are one of the largest sources of consternation among fans who are very mad generally that the Fangraphs projections do not necessarily match with what they believe the Orioles projections should be. Uh, now, okay. the Zips projections that are part of the Fangraphs projections do like the Orioles better than Fangraphs does simply because of differences in methodology, but just not to the degree that the record is. Everyone wants the projections to say they're going to win 98 games. And until I say that, none of my uh, uh my my city mates or my former city mates are going to be very happy with me. Right. Well, the, let's just let's just be precise. They're they're playing it as six twenty clip so far. The projected rest of the season is only five hundred. Even it touched below five hundred for a full season win total of eighty nine. So I can understand why that would be unsatisfying to the to the big fans. But of course, we're always talking about regression to the mean round here. That doesn't surprise us too much. Maybe that's not a bad introduction into your Z, I'm calling them Z stats. Maybe that's not the right thing to call them, but you said that your your statistical package, your Z stats are a little more optimistic about the Orioles. Why, why would that be? What is it that these things do? Well, the Z stats doesn't specifically like the Orioles better. Uh, it's kind of the methodology of how I calculate rest of season playing time. Uh, I Fangraphs to do a daily update assumes a static number of plate appearances or innings pitched for each uh, picture and batter uh, while the zips methodology which i don't run every day because it's extremely time sense or time intensive to work on that is i project a variable amount of uh, plate appearances and and innings pitched for pictures based on their history so generally speaking my methodology will reward depth more than the bog standard fan graphs one will and that's why zips tends to like the cardinals most years better than fan graphs and the mets less well than Fangraphs does. Those are kind of the differences in how that shakes out. Zips tends okay. to like the Rays better than consensus. Uh, now, Z-Stats, it's just kind of the zip spin. Dan, let me hold you on there before we go to Z-Stats altogether, because I think we should take advantage of talking about an AL East team that is not New York or Boston. Can you give us a little bit more on Baltimore? And this has been, it's a little bit been the baseball process of uh, the, of the Sam Hinkie trust the process. It's been a rebuild for a few years. It's been a little painful. But we knew some, we thought that some wise people were in charge and they had the support of ownership. And so we've had some confidence. It seems to be bearing fruit now. What should we expect in the future for Baltimore? Can they really stand up against the Sox and the Yankees, these moneyed clubs? Can we expect them to be competitive in that division going forward? 
I think the the largest problem, and especially if you get to a postseason scenario, is the rotation just I don't know. The projections are still quite skeptical about the Orioles starting pitching. Uh, but the results have been quite solid, uh, at least from the frontline pitching. I mean, Cole Irvin was terrible early on. Grace Rodriguez, uh, let's let's not talk about his debut so far. But there's kind of that disconnect right now between the expectations of the starting pitching and how the projections see them. Uh, and that turns out to be a bigger deal when you talk playoffs, because yep. really the only the primary difference between regular season performance and postseason performance is there's a, that that density of of team quality that comes to the front in the playoffs uh the the first three first four pictures in the rotation mean a lot more than say your top seven or eight guys which factors over 162 games and so zips tends to you know like the orioles a little bit than fangrass but not that much better and Mm -hmm. still sees the orioles as a favorite to make the playoffs at this point because so much of the season is baked in and into the cake at this point right but it, it it does see them having a problem in the playoffs because realistically you you think of every possible game that they would play in a in a expected playoff scenario and they probably have the worst starting picture of the two in most of the games and that is a problem okay <laughs> yeah right all right give me one other moment on the Orioles the athletic recently by, by recent I mean the last 24 hours or so published a poll of the of players on a variety of questions which is kind of fun to look at one of them was if you were going to start a team now around, around one player, who would that player be? And Otani kind of obviously, but also overwhelmingly was the choice. 45% of the play, of the hundred or so players that were surveyed chose him. Number four on the list. Well, by the way, let's throw Bradlow and Weiner a bone here. Aaron Judge was number two. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr., number three. But then Adley Rutschman slides in here. The only other player with more than 5%. 5.8%, the catcher, the Orioles catcher. Tell us a little bit about this guy. And for those who may not know anything about him, why is the Orioles catcher sliding in as the fourth most popular player among current players as if I was going to build a team around a guy? Well, one of the things about catchers, it's a hard position to fill competently. And it's a hard position to not have kind of a timeshare. You look at a lot of the teams around the league and they're kind of patching together uh, their catcher situation, even even some very good teams, like at least how we saw the Blue Jays coming into the season uh, with Danny Jansen and Alex Alejandro Kirk. Uh, but the Orioles, Rutschman is kind of that old school catcher in a way that you can start him 120, 130 games at the position. He's good enough off- offensively that you can spell him at, you know, give him some time off at DH and he's still a plus in the lineup. And he's a very well-rounded player. Uh, he doesn't have any major defensive problems and no major offensive weakness. And given his age and his polish and the fact that he plays catcher, that's a really, you know, enticing package to offer any team in a theoretical expansion draft. I would take Otani too first because you get the hitter and the pitcher, uh, but I would definitely take Rutschman up there. Given, given kind of like the propensity for injury, I, I think as an exercise, kind of this this is like oh you want to build your franchise around somebody i think as a unique as adley rushman is within his position would you ever pick a catcher for that given the you know given their length of their careers versus other position players i think it would come down to I guess in this in this fictional expansion draft, where exactly you're drafting, I probably wouldn't draft him as high as fourth or fifth. Uh, but if he say fell to twelfth, then all of a sudden, yeah, then then you have to absorb that risk because with any player, you're going to absorb risk somewhere. Uh, with Otani, there's additional risk in that if you lose the picture, you might not necessarily have the hitter part too, depending on exactly what happens if he has you know, major elbow surgery or shoulder surgery or something, you've kind of lost the picture in the batter. So you lose that kind of, of, of package. It's just really a balance of how good a player is, how young they are. Uh, I don't think uh, salary was part of that equation when they were talking. So that's not really a, a, a thing, but I mean, there's no player that is a certainty. And I think that people tend to have this idea that stars are, are invincible in a way. Uh, I get that every year when everyone's like, why do you have all these stars with lower projections than last year? It's like, well, because they're on the edge of the risk curve. There's a lot more, more bad things that can happen than good. So just to follow up on, on Shane's uh, question about or observation about catchers, it's, it's really hard to value a catcher because you get s- typically so little offense from them. 
Although I feel like that's worse and worse as time goes on. Maybe Dan, you can respond to that. If you go back historically, it always seemed to be some great catchers around, but I, I feel like there's almost none to that. That's why Rashman comes up as such a, an obvious candidate. Um, but the, the, the position has to get filled. You can't move him around with someone else. You can't move a shortstop to play catcher or an outfielder. The, the reverse you can sometimes do, but you can't, you can't, you can make a catcher when they're a teenager or college, or maybe even the minors, but you can't do it at the professional level. And it just is a, is a sinkhole. And I feel like none of the valuation metrics appropriately um, just confront that, that scarcity head on. It's, it's a tricky position, and it's not just tricky for that reason. It's because parts of the job are very difficult to evaluate. Uh, defense for catchers is a much more complicated job than evaluating shortstop defense. A shortstop's job is pretty clear cut. Get the balls that are hit to them, turn to double play, don't screw up the stolen base attempts. That's mostly the shortstop's job. While the catcher has an interactivity with the pitcher that really no other position has except pickoff attempts, but that's almost by rote. Uh, I, I, I do think that is a problem, but I do think that when you look at someone who's that far above the crowd, you start to think, okay, well, maybe he's worth this risk. Uh, we did an expansion draft similar to this on ESPN about 10, 12 years ago. And a lot of people were mad at me for taking Buster Posey 15th, but I'm like 15th. I mean, that's a great place to take Posey. I would be very happy to have him for the next decade. And I, it turned out to be okay. Not a bad pick. I, just to follow up with one, one comment, you know, all those years, the Yankees won so many world series and titles and most people would point to their important players, Mantle, DiMaggio, but the people who were closest to the team said it was Barra over and over again because the catcher. <laughs> and, and they had some really good catchers in their history. Yep. So, Dan, let me ask you a, a related question to what you said earlier about the Orioles. If someone just for a year, not for their entire career, said you could trade Rushman for, let's say, the Yankees, and you could get either of their catchers, Higashioka or Trevino, but you'd also get Garrett Cole. So that in the playoffs, you would have possibly the best pitcher in every matchup. Would you do it? It's it's kind of I'm asking you to play like a virtual GM and why assembling a team using analytics is not as trivial as some people might think. I, I think if we're talking for a year, I would definitely do it. It's, if I can get him back at the end of the year, hopefully. But <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I, just saying you're talking, we're talking about making the, in some sense, we're talking about interaction effects or matchups in, you know, types of series. And so, yes, you wouldn't trade him for the Yankees catcher and you might not trade him for a very good pitcher, but if you could get someone who's as outlying on the pitching dimension as he's on the catching dimension for a season, you might do it. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think I would do that. Garrett Cole, the top of the Orioles rotation with a decent non-star catcher. I, I think that's a better team. That might be a better team, period, even not going into the playoffs uh, at, at the risk of. <laughs> and then one thing we always talk about in other sports as well is when Garrett Cole's number one, then whoever's number one on the Orioles is now number two, which makes them a much more effective pitcher. So I, I, I'm just emphasizing your point, Dan. I think that makes a lot of sense, too. Yeah, and I, actually, uh, Dan, I wanted to kind of give, given your expertise in projections, I, I was wondering if you could give your perspective on um, what Corbin Carroll's been doing out there uh, for the Diamondbacks. I mean, there's rookie of the year candidates, and then there's leading the actual entire major leagues in offensive war. So, uh, he, can you give a perspective on how unique that is as a rookie season, and what you would do with that as far as him going forward? No, it's he. he the the quality of his rookie season is very rare because you look at his his rest of season projections from this point on, which are basically a remixed projection of what came before and what came uh, this season so far. And it already has him as one of the best players in the league. And uh, the good news uh, from my perspective is that Zips already liked him a lot coming into the season. Uh, it had him uh, 43rd in war among all, all position players, which he's going to beat pretty handily uh, now. And that was only a 130 game projection. But there were a lot of good reasons to like him coming into the season. And those those reasons have been largely reinforced by his play. Uh, I, I, I hate to compare him to Trout because it's not to the same degree. 
but he's one of those cases of 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 a player who people say that projection is ridiculous and the projection turned out to be very wrong but in the opposite direction because zips projected trout to be a four win player a four war player his rookie season which was an extremely aggressive projection for a rookie and it was off by you know more than 100 <laughs> percent. that's amazing Let's talk a little bit more about these projections and these stats and the Z stats in particular, because you've got a whole suite of these that we, we, we've talked about over the years. We think of them as more fundamental measures. Adi, you've had a term for this that I've lost now, but tell us what, what these Z stats are and why they're useful. Well, basically, if, if, you, if you're someone who hangs around MLB StatCast, you see they have something called X stats, which are, are tend to be very simple stats based on, uh, for example, their X batting average is batting average based on the, uh, the, uh, the, the velocity that a ball is hit and the angle a ball is hit. And those are the only two pieces of information involved in that. Uh, since I want to improve projections and do a better job than and real quickly, let me just clarify. So you're talking about, they use process measures. This is one way of thinking about it. They use process measures instead of outcome measures. I mean, batting average is an outcome based statistic and you, but we know that's noisy. And so these guys are going to go in and use something that's less noisy. And that's going to be something involved in the process. And you're saying that for the X stats, it is exit velocity and angle. Okay, great. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's the start. That's the idea. That's a concept. Okay. Uh, that's, that's what they use. Uh, Zips also uses data, uh, for example, a player's speed, uh, because speed is an important aspect of batting average on balls in play. Uh, faster players will tend to have a higher batting average in balls in play than slower players do. Uh, so the idea to use data like that to make these kind of peripheral stats more predictive. Uh, I always try to use it. I call it more elemental in a way. Uh, I think of of of, of Plato uh, or was it Aristotle? Well, reducing everything to kind of elementals, uh, and the hit is the result of a lot of things. But we mm-hmm. want to get what makes the hit happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, I don't mind. I mean, I like the X stats because that that is elemental in, in some sense, irreducible at this some point. In other words, this is this really expresses everything that you need to know about what happened uh, in terms of what was responsible by the hitter. And everything else is responsible by the park you're in, by the atmospheric conditions for some cases, for, uh, for the fielders, et cetera, et cetera. But and that's OK. But there's lots of lots of other metrics that get used to evaluate hitters that are become very common. I think Fangraphs is responsible for a lot of those that really, in some sense, really miss it, uh, particularly with hitters, because it doesn't differentiate between outcomes that produce runs and those that don't. And they argue uh, that that's because that's not in the hitter's control. But that's not always true. So be more specific. Take RBIs. Uh, RBIs used to be the stat of the of our time, Eric and I, you know, those who followed baseball, that was the stat. I mean, it shows how much you produced. And now I just, I'm reading a, a baseball biography and the, the author just offhanded remarks, we don't care about RBIs because it's a team stat. And well, the fact of the matter is, is that it, it's not a team stat. I mean, it does depend on who you're, where you are in the lineup, that matters. And that's not the player's choice. And who comes up on the, who's on the bases, that's not the player's choice either. But delivering when it matters is something that is really, really important. And while that may not be the best thing to be used for predictions into the future, that's not the that's not when we want to talk about what happened and who did a lot. We want to see who did it when it was necessary. And RBIs very much express that. And same thing with hits. You know, you can't just rank a player based on X, whatever it is, if you're if you're not treating hits that happen when there's when there's with that produce runs differently than ones that happen when there's nobody on base and you're losing by 10. Uh, well, I'm fortunate in a way, since I mostly focus on the projections, I don't kind of have to get into that philosophical battle between a statistics job in reporting and a statistics job in predicting what the underlying ability was. And uh, really with all the stats you see at Fangraphs and all sabermetric stats, really, you kind of see that battle of, of just, how well a stat do we want stats to describe what happened or do we want or stats to report kind of the deeper underlying meaning of what happened and these things kind of clash uh you see that with the difference in the way that fangraphs expresses a picture war versus the way baseball reference expresses picture war while baseball reference starts with the actual event 
the the runs allowed and makes adjustments based on that, based on team defense. Fangraphs uses FIP, which is one of those stats that's more elemental in a way. It's using stats that are more volatile to try to get more meaning out of what the data is, uh, or the data are, excuse me. I I think that you kind of get into that that, that philosophical battle, which I'm not really sure is necessarily a right answer to. Uh, we still show RBI and we still show a lot of the other basic stats because they do tell stories. Can I ask a quick question? Why are quality starts shown? I don't know. We've actually had a talk about that. Uh, I, I, I'm not. It's a way, sure well, I, we can agree that, you know, if you're going to just tabulate what happened, there are, there are better representation actually of what happened to a pitcher than wins. Yeah, there's there's sometimes some stats that we're missing and some stats we have that are surprising. Uh, oh. For like ground grounders and double plays, we have we for some reason that's missing for pictures, and we have kind of an argument every year, like when are we gonna get this implemented, and then we move on to something else. <laughs> Dan, we're gonna have to let you go because of time. Um, though we'd love to have you back, we could do this for a long time. Maybe you could give us one storyline that is top of mind for you through the rest of the year? What's what's something you think might be interesting to keep our eye on as the season unfolds? Well, the team I find the most interesting at this moment is the Cincinnati Reds in a way, because they're a team that 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 tanked so quickly. And now they have all these players in the minor, the high minors who are coming up very exciting. So now they're kind of caught between two contrasting plans. Uh, the the cheap, the cheap part, uh, the, you know, getting Joey Votto, his his retirement year or you know, is the the valedictory march uh, and getting these players in the lineup. And I think that they could surprise the NL Central, which is really, really weak right now. And they're going to be like the dog that catches the car. Okay, what do we do now? <laughs> All right, good. Well, that's always a fun club to bring back into our consciousness. They haven't been very relevant since since back when we were children, but they're a good, good historic team for us to pay attention to. Dan, thanks for making time for us, man. Fun to talk to you. Wish you the best with all the work you're doing at Pangraphs. Thanks for having me on. Always a blast to talk baseball. Have me on anytime. Absolutely. Dan Zimborski, you can find him on Fangraphs. You can find him on Twitter. Zimborski's with an S, S-Z-Y. That has been a full hour of sports athletics here with Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week. Many thanks to the whole team here. Audie Weiner, Brad Lowe, Shane Jensen, they've been with us from the beginning. Maddie Dats, the boss man. Appreciate it, Maddie. Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. And we appreciate you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.